We turn in sacred scripture to Matthew's account of Jesus' crucifixion, or the Spirit's word as penned by Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. Starting at verse 27, Matthew 27, verse 27. And we read through verse 56. The text is verse 45. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him, They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation, written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias, for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. 
Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, saying, It is finished, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. So far, we read God's holy and infallible word. The text is verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction, I want to point out two things about this passage, two things about which we need to be mindful right away. First of all, I want to point out that with this passage, we are standing on holy ground. We need to be impressed with that from the outset of the preaching. Now, I know With every passage of Scripture, we are standing on holy ground. Every passage of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and every passage of Scripture reveals to us the gospel of Jesus Christ in one way or another. But this passage, in a special way, needs to be treated with care. And I think you can understand that when we consider that the sermon this evening is all about darkness. That's what our text is. Three hours of darkness that enveloped the land. And the darkness itself is really telling us that this is a holy event. And really, in the whole text of the sermon for this evening, there's nothing to see. There's nothing to look at. There's nothing to record. There is only three hours of darkness. Three hours of darkness in which Jesus Christ... The only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who became incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, three hours of darkness in which He entered into the deepest agonies and reproaches of hell. Three hours in which Jesus endured hell. That's what the sermon is about this evening. How can we preach on this, congregation? How can we preach on something that is unfathomable? How can we preach on something that is such a holy and terrible event that it was enshrouded by God Himself in thick darkness? With this passage this evening, we are standing on holy ground. The second thing I want to point out is that this event we look at this evening stands at the very center of all of history. 
These three hours of darkness don't just stand in the middle of one day, right? From high noon until three in the afternoon. No, but these three hours of darkness stand exactly in the middle of all of history. In the midday of the one day, we might say, of all of world history. This is the time when Jesus' hour has come. This is the time when God will show His love and commend His love towards us. This is the day of all days in which God, in a most profound and unfathomable way, shows forth the glory of His attributes. All of history revolves around these three hours. All of history has this as its focal point. Jesus and His great work of redemption. All of eternity for you and me going forward is shaped by what happened on this day and what happened in those three hours and shrouded in darkness. Because this is where your Savior goes to work in a very special way, bearing the punishment for all your sins, enduring the agony of God's wrath against your sins, falling here under the devastating word of God's curse, so that you and I might know God's word of blessing, so that you and I might have God's face Shine upon us so that you and I might know God's blessing and God's smile unto all eternity. This event stands at the very center of all of history. Those are just two things I want to bring to your attention by way of introduction as we now look at this passage in more detail. We'll touch on these things again in the course of the sermon. We take as our theme... Darkness at Calvary. And we look at that theme under three points. First, we look at the wonder itself, the the darkness itself. Second, we look at the explanation for this darkness. And then third, we look at the comfort for God's people in this darkness. As you children know, Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, about six hours, from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. During the first three hours that Jesus was on the cross, the sun was shining. And during the first three hours that Jesus was on the cross, there was much activity. All kinds of commotion, really. First of all, Jesus himself was active. Remember those first three words he spoke from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And then, as we looked at last week's Sunday, Jesus speaking to his mother and speaking to John. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. Jesus taking care of other people during those three hours of darkness. The chief priests were also very active, right? They had gone to Pilate to lodge their objection concerning the superscription. They had followed Jesus out to the place of crucifixion, and there they were taunting him with jeers incessantly. The Roman soldiers also had been active. They, of course, had dug the hole for the cross. They nailed Jesus to the cross. They parted his garments. They cast lots for his seamless robe. And now they were standing guard over this gruesome scene. 
There was all kinds of activity during those first three hours of darkness. People walking past the cross, shaking their heads. John bringing the women to see Jesus. John bringing Mary back to his home. And if you would have looked at the cross during those first three hours with the sun shining brightly, well, the crucifixion of Jesus would have looked in many ways like an ordinary crucifixion. It would have appeared emphatically as the work of mere men, as if God wasn't involved here at all. Crucifixions were not a rare thing. This appears to be just like any other crucifixion. Then, suddenly, at the sixth hour, we read, Jewish time, at high noon, there was a radical change. And all this activity swarming around the cross comes to an abrupt end. Jesus is quiet. The chief priests and the Pharisees are quiet. The Roman soldiers are quiet. Everything becomes quiet and still as a thick, paralyzing darkness descends upon the entire land. It's high noon. At the time when the sun should be shining its brightest and strongest rays. And we read, From the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And so we can imagine that as the darkness envelops the land, the people fall silent. What was this darkness? Well, it certainly wasn't a natural darkness. This wasn't an eclipse of the sun. This wasn't a darkness that's created by uh, volcanic ash or by a forest fire. That's clear from the fact that this darkness suddenly falls upon the land at, at 12 noon when the sun's at its brightest and the darkness lasts for three hours and then at 3 p.m. it lifts just as suddenly as it came. This was not a natural darkness. This was a miracle of God. And all the people, no matter how drunken in unbelief they were, or how stupefied in contempt they were for the Christ, all the people knew that something unusual, something miraculous, something frightening was happening. And everything came to a standstill in the darkness. Perhaps the only thing you could hear at the foot of the cross was the heavy panting of Jesus as He continues to breathe during those three hours of darkness. Well, how are we to picture this darkness? Well, in Luke's account, we read in Luke 23, verse 45, and the sun was darkened. And I picture it this way, that when the darkness descended upon the earth, the sun could perhaps still be seen for a brief moment through the darkness, kind of as a pale disk in the sky. And then that quickly fades away too, and it becomes completely dark on Calvary. And it becomes night, night over the whole land of Canaan. Using the language that's found in Luke's account, where we read that the sun was darkened, some will say that this means that the darkness spread over the whole earth, that the sun itself was darkened, the sun was failing, and that means that there was no sunlight over the entire earth for three hours. Others will emphasize the language found in Matthew and Mark that there was a darkness that fell over the land and they will say that the darkness was only limited to the land of Canaan. 
It was a darkness that fell over the whole land, but not over the whole earth per se, but over the land of Canaan. I think either option is possible. If you want my own personal opinion, I would say right now, I guess, that it was just over the land. That's how I understand this. But either way, however you want to understand this, there was something altogether miraculous. And as far as the darkness itself, I think we can picture the darkness in a few different ways. First, I think it is legitimate to compare this darkness on Good Friday as being comparable to the darkness that fell over Egypt for three days when God sent the ninth plague. You remember that ninth plague that God sent Egypt, that that God sent upon Egypt was darkness, darkness that fell over the whole land. And in Exodus 10, verse 21, we read that that darkness was not just an ordinary darkness, but it was a darkness that could be felt. There was a darkness that fell over the whole land that could be felt. A thick darkness, a soupy blackness, an inky blackness, like a blanket thrown over the land. And I think that the darkness at Calvary was similar. An unnatural, supernatural darkness that could be felt. Even the kind of darkness that so falls on the land that it even muffles and deadens all sounds. For another passage of Scripture, think of the darkness that will fall upon the world when Jesus comes to judge the world. In Mark 13, verse 24, when Jesus gives His disciples instruction concerning the end times, Jesus says, Mark 13, verse 24, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And that's the same language that's used in Luke 23, where we read the sun was darkened on Good Friday. And I think comparing this darkness that we read about on Good Friday with the darkness that you read about in the ninth plague on Egypt and the darkness that Jesus speaks about at the end of the world is appropriate to to group these together because in every single instance, this darkness bespeaks God's judgment. God's judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt, His wrath and His curse, God's judgment upon the world and the final judgment. And now here too on Good Friday, it's the same thing. We'll get to that in the second point of the sermon, but this darkness is a sign of God's judgment. God's judgment coming down upon Jesus. The point is, in the middle of the day, the daytime became as nighttime. It was as if God Himself put His own hand in front of the sun so that the sun should no longer cause its shining rays to fall on the land of Judah. This was quite obviously an altogether unique miracle that God performed. And what's interesting, beloved, is that this too was prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. Indirectly, at least. You see that over and over again in all of Jesus' sufferings, especially as you get closer to this event of His actual crucifixion. Right? Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that was the perfect fulfillment of prophecy, Zechariah 11. Judas then actually goes out and betrays Jesus. And that was the fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 41. We've looked at Psalm 69 recently, and we've sang Psalm 22. All those prophecies about casting uh, lots for his raiment, uh, piercing his hands, uh, 
Not one bone was broken. And there's so many prophecies being fulfilled. In, in a sense, this whole event right now, Good Friday itself, is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushing the head of the serpent. And now the point is simply that the darkness we read of here is also the fulfillment of prophecy. In Amos chapter 8, Amos speaks a word of judgment upon those who oppress the poor and the needy. And in Amos 8 verse 9, Amos writes, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Back in Amos 5 verse 20, Amos also writes, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark, and no brightness in it? That's exactly what's happening here on Good Friday. It's a clear and sunny day in Jerusalem. Jesus is nailed to the cross. There's all kinds of activity. The cross appears to be the work of mere men. And then suddenly, there is darkness. The sun goes down at noon and God darkens the earth in the clear day. And it is an altogether sobering, sublime, and terrifying event. That's the wonder of the darkness. Well, all that leads us to ask the question, what does this mean? We've looked at the wonder, but but now what's the explanation for this darkness? And we've already mentioned some things in passing, but let's go into more detail. I have four, even five things to mention about the, the significance and the explanation for this darkness. First, with this darkness... God Himself is calling everyone's attention to what's going on here on this holy day. With this darkness, God is calling attention to the death of His Son taking place on Calvary's cross. For the first three hours, it seems as if the cross is just an ordinary thing, as if this is just the work of mere men. But now, with this three hours of darkness, God is showing, communicating to the world That this is not just men's work. This is God's work. This is primarily God's work. And with those three hours of darkness, God was causing everyone to pause what they were doing and to pay heed to this holy event. God, God the maker of heaven and earth, is not going to permit His creation and permit His world to go on carrying its business as usual, we might say, while His own only begotten Son, is dying on the cross. God would not allow this central event in all of history, the death of His only begotten Son, to take place without anyone noticing, as if it was ordinary. God instead caused the entire land, perhaps the entire world, to come to a standstill and have three hours of darkness and take notice. As the central event in all of history the redemption of God's elect people takes place. And Jesus, His own Son, suffers the unspeakable agonies of hell. That, first of all. Second, with this darkness, God is signifying His own judgment against the wicked world. With this darkness, God is communicating to the wicked His own wrath 
at the unspeakable sin that the wicked world is committing in this very act of crucifying the King of glory. This is the greatest crime in all of history. And with this darkness, God is, is proclaiming the kind of judgment under which wicked people fall. Who, who are guilty of this sin and, and who are not hid in Jesus Christ. This darkness is a small foreboding, a small foreshadowing of the great judgment that will fall on the world at Christ's second coming. Just listen for a moment to these words. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. The Old Testament is full of this kind of language. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And right here, in the darkness of Good Friday, God gives a foreboding, a taste of the terrible judgment that will fall upon wicked people. That will fall upon the world in the great day of judgment. That second of all, third of all, and especially... This darkness has to do with God's judgment upon Jesus himself. The darkness that fell over the land on that Good Friday was a sign of God's judgment falling upon Jesus Christ. That's what darkness represents. It represents judgment. That was true with the, the, the plague of darkness in Egypt. That's true in the end of the world. Darkness is a symbol of judgment. Listen to these words. Joel 2 verses 1 and 2. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh. For it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. In verse 10, Joel 2 verse 10, we read, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And in Joel 2 verse 31, we read, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And what this darkness on Good Friday is telling us is that this hour, these three hours, is the day of judgment. For Jesus, His death on the cross is His day of judgment. This darkness signifies that God Himself has come down upon the land to judge Jesus. And God is there in the darkness at Calvary, in His fierce anger, visiting Jesus in His judgment. In the three hours of darkness, God is damning Jesus. In the darkness, Jesus is being cast into hell. In his soul and in his body, Jesus is enduring the agony of the just wrath of God against the sins of his people. There is no mercy for Jesus. He bears God's curse 
entirely. And this is why darkness is so fitting. Because isn't that exactly how hell is described in Scripture? Didn't Jesus himself throughout his earthly ministry describe hell as a place of outer darkness? And here on the cross, Jesus himself is being cast into that outer darkness that he himself warned warned others about. Here on the cross, Jesus himself is being separated, separating, separated from everything, separated from everything, so that he might experience now only the wrath of God against our sins. In the darkness, Jesus is being isolated from every form of fellowship. Fellowship with man, certainly, and also fellowship with God. He is being forsaken of his Father. And he even gives expression to that at the end of the three hours of darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the darkness, all light is taken away. The light of God's countenance, God's bright shining face is totally taken away. This is judgment. This is the absence of all comfort, all safety, all security. This is complete outer darkness. This represents an absolutely terrifying set of circumstances. No light, no life Only outer darkness. This is hell. We could say, this is excommunication. This is what excommunication is, beloved. This darkness represents God thrusting Jesus outside the camp and outside of his presence. Jesus is absolutely alone. No society, no company, no interaction with others. He is excommunicated. This is Jesus, the scapegoat, being sent into the wilderness. The wilderness of utter darkness. The wilderness of hell. The wilderness of God's wrath against sin. This is God coming at Christ with judgment from above. And he's even now pressing all creation into the service of of expressing his wrath upon Jesus. So that even the sun and the moon and the stars are communicating something. With this darkness, God is thrusting Jesus outside the sphere of life into the sphere of death. Just think, what do you need for life? What you need for life is light. Without light, there's only death. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here on the cross. Yes, physically, he's still alive. He's still breathing. But what this darkness means is that he is experiencing the fullness of darkness right now as he's living Fullness of darkness, not only in his soul, but also in his body. His whole being experiences the fullness of death. This is God's judgment upon Jesus. That third of all. And then fourth, in addition to all of that, this darkness helps to express the idea that the suffering Jesus was going through, through those three hours, is unfathomable. It's infinite, extreme suffering. Congregation, I want you to think about this for a moment. What happens in the darkness? Have you ever been engulfed in utter darkness so that you can't see a thing 
what happens? I, I remember one moment from childhood. It, it lives in my memory, being in utter darkness in my bedroom. I didn't know where I was. I was stuck in the closet. And it was terrifying. What, what happens? What happens in the darkness is this. First of all, you lose all sense of space. You suddenly become utterly lost without any sense of direction, any sense of location. And it is absolutely terrifying because you are utterly lost. Because you are in utter darkness. And second, you lose all sense of time. There's no light, so there's no way to tell time. There's no movement, there's nothing to see. In the daytime, we can tell the passage of time by the moving of the sun. In the nighttime, even by, by the, the moon and, and the stars, or, or maybe even if our watch lights up in the night, or at least there's movement, and there's some sense of time when there's movement. But when the things are utterly dark, there's no sense of time. You are simply consumed and annihilated by the darkness. And I think that too is what this darkness at Calvary is expressing. On Calvary's cross, Jesus enters into utter darkness. And in that isolation of that utter darkness, Jesus has nothing. He has nothing except for the responsibility that crushing responsibility of bearing the weight of all our sins. Yes, we know, we look at the passage, we see that he's on the cross for three hours. But in the midst of that utter darkness, that suffering must have seemed like an eternity. The darkness, the point is, the darkness expresses the infinity of God's wrath, infinite sufferings. So extreme are these sufferings of Jesus during those three hours of darkness that if it were not for His divine nature upholding His human nature, Jesus would simply not have been able to bear up under the extreme wrath of God. Such were Jesus' sufferings that His entire human nature, His entire being in every part of His body and in every part of His soul, He is crushed he is in agony and he is in sorrow and he is entirely spent. The intensity of Jesus' suffering is such that it consumes the utter extremities of his capacity for suffering. So that this man of sorrows is wholly, entirely consumed by the wrath of God. The Son of God experiences the humanly impossible experience of suffering an infinite burden of wrath in a finite period of time. And all of this is being communicated to us and is captured for us in this reality of Jesus being cast out into utter darkness. The darkness that enveloped Jesus at Calvary was but the physical expression, the visible expression of the inner darkness. He's experiencing in his soul. That is hell, beloved. This darkness at Calvary is for Jesus the day of the Lord. It is for Jesus the day of judgment. And in those three hours of darkness, lost in the spaceless, timeless expanse of those three hours of darkness, Jesus experienced all the sufferings of all the sins of all his people. And Jesus was alert for all of it. He was 
alive, awake for all of it. He was numb to none of it, but perfectly sensitive to everything. And he labored. In the darkness, he labored. And he continued to love his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He continued to love God perfectly, even as he himself was being thrust into outer darkness. And all these sufferings we are speaking about are themselves unfathomable. You and I will never really know what Jesus endured in those three hours of darkness. Exactly because he spared it from us, spared us from it. It's far too deep for us. We only scratch the surface of even contemplating what Jesus suffered on the cross. And that itself is perhaps even another reason for the darkness. Maybe a fifth reason we could say. These sufferings of Christ are, are holy sufferings. They are reverent sufferings. Which no mere human eye can behold. So that God even worked it. So, so that no human eye was able. Because no human eye is permitted to see what transpired on that cross of Calvary during those three hours. No man could see the terrors that distorted Jesus' face on the cross. No human words would be able to capture the suffering that Jesus endured in that darkness. This is an altogether holy event. God himself in the flesh, on the cross, enduring the wrath of God. This is entirely God and God's own work God obtaining salvation for His people. That's why I said in the introduction, we are standing here this evening on holy ground. And the darkness itself gives its own peculiar expression to that. That this is holy ground. Yes, some will come to know what Jesus suffered, in a way. Those who believe not in Jesus Christ, those who turn away from Him with hardened hearts, those who love their sin so that they don't forsake their sin, they will know. They will be cast by God into outer darkness, that outer darkness reserved for the devil and his angels. But you and I, beloved, we won't know what that darkness was like. And even in our own darkest moments, we will never know this darkness, this darkness of Calvary. But Jesus did know it. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, for whom communion with His Father was His perfect desire. And what did He experience? Exactly this, being forsaken of His heavenly Father, having the wrath of God poured out in its full measure. No, in the moment, God did not hate Jesus. God loved Jesus. But nevertheless, as the great judge... God inflicted upon Jesus the punishment of all the sins of his people. And Jesus experienced the wrath of the judge. He experienced the, that expression of God's wrath during those three hours of darkness. This is perhaps as close as we can come to explaining this darkness at Calvary. Those, those five things to help us understand what this darkness is all about. The astonishing thing is that in these sufferings and in the appearance of this horrible darkness that engulfs the cross, there is comfort for you and me. 
There is comfort as we look at the darkness. First of all, there is darkness here for you and me because, I think I just said it, this darkness that Jesus endured was the judgment of God against your sins and my sins. That outer darkness that Jesus experienced was the outer darkness that was due unto us for our sins. But Jesus, who is our head and our representative and our substitute, endured that outer darkness for us. And what this means is that the day in which God will visit us and the day when God will judge us for all our sins has already passed. It took place already 2,000 years ago during those three hours on the cross of Calvary. Your day of judgment, in one sense, has already passed. That great and terrible day of the Lord, when the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light, for us, that terrible day has already taken place. Because your Jesus suffered it for you already on the cross. The hell that Jesus experienced, that's our hell. Do you realize what that means, beloved? There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them who are in Jesus Christ. We are no longer under the curse of the law. Jesus was made a curse for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. So that instead of wrath, the wrath of the judge, there is the favor and the approving smile of the judge upon you and me. Instead of judgment, there is mercy. There is that word of freedom. That that word of justification. Instead of death, there is life. Life eternal in Jesus Christ. He's made the covering. He's made the atonement. He's satisfied God's justice. And all that comes out very clearly in what happens after those three hours of darkness. Maybe I can ask the children. Children, what happened after those three hours of darkness? What happened after those three hours of darkness was this. The darkness lifted. The darkness lifted. And by God lifting the darkness and Jesus coming out still alive after the darkness, all of it is communicating to us that Jesus made it through. He endured the full wrath of God against all our sins. He endured the full wrath of God for all those for whom he died. Because if he hadn't, if he hadn't endured through it all, if he hadn't made the full satisfaction, it would still be dark over the land. Even today, if Jesus hadn't made the full satisfaction, the darkness on Good Friday would never have been lifted. That the darkness lifted and the light returned. That God himself lifted the darkness and brought the light to shine again. Is proof positive that God's wrath and righteousness have been satisfied. Our sins entirely blotted out and we are justified in Christ. That's even what Jesus knew when soon after the darkness lifted, he could say with a loud voice, It is finished. 
And then he could commend his spirit unto the Lord. He already knew it before. He said it, he said it to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. But then with the darkness lifting, Jesus, God is communicating to Jesus and to all his people that our sins are blotted out. And because Jesus went through the darkness completely, the comfort for you and me is also this, that we will never have to go through the darkness. Indeed, we are brought out of the darkness. We have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are made children of light. And already now we enjoy the beginning of dwelling in the light of God's fellowship and favor. And one day we will be brought into that glory where there will never be any darkness anymore. No night, no darkness, no confusion of the mind either, no darkness in any way, but there will be only light. And it won't be merely the light of the sun or the light of the moon, but it will be the light of God himself shining through Jesus Christ. We have hope, beloved. We walk in the light and we have hope of eternal glory. We will never be forsaken of God because our Savior went through the darkness himself and he made it all the way through. This is what we celebrate on Good Friday. This is what we celebrate on Good Friday. And all of this is the free gift of a gracious, sovereign, holy God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth, who has worked such a great salvation for his chosen people. What a God he is, beloved. What a Savior he is. Indeed, as we heard at the beginning, praise ye the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we praise Thy holy name, and we stand in awe at the wonder of it all. Oh, Lord, we love Thy truth. And we love the truth of who we are as Thy people. We give Thee thanks for Good Friday. We give Thee thanks for this gospel news. Lord, write it upon our hearts and shape our lives by it, that we might indeed every day praise Thee, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.